Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. Today, we actually do be sipping on the same coffee because I got my coffee in right before Erica was about to leave. This coffee was suggested to us by one of our followers. Her name's Carolyn, and she suggested that we drink Little Wolf Coffee, the companion blend. I actually freaking love it. So thanks, Carolyn. It has yeah, thank you. berry chocolate, and it's described as creamy. And I would have to agree with that. Great description, Little Wolf. So do we have any true crime updates for our listeners today? Uh, oh, oh, yes, I do. This update is for the Elise Poller case. When we talked about Elise Poller's case before, I told everybody about how Royce Casey was granted parole suitability earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Well, the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney, Dan Dow, told KSBY that Governor Gavin Newsom had reversed the parole board's decision to let him out. So he ain't yeah. coming out. We love to see it. We love to see it. But I think that's all I've got. You got anything? Um, there are some Lorival updates in the works, but kind of a a good bit of evidence came out. So I want to put it all together when there's more and we have like a complete picture. I'll give the update. All right. I'm excited to hear about it because I've just been waiting patiently to hear what the hell is going on with her. I feel like I've been waiting way too long. I know it's taking too damn long, but that's what happens when you're involved in so many crimes in so many states we just want to give a shout out to everyone today for continuing to support our podcast we have like nearly 3,000 downloads at this point we are just so happy and grateful for you guys so continue to listen continue to follow us and if you have any cases that you're wanting us to cover please let us know because I feel like recently we've got a few and I get really excited every time you guys give us a suggestion Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and so much for your support and your feedback. We really appreciate it. If you do want to send us a case to cover, send us some coffee to get to try or just anything in general, you can go ahead and contact us through social media. Everything is at Crime on Caffeine. Our email, crimeoncaffeine at gmail.com and website is crimeoncaffeine.com. I will say, Carolyn does know what she's talking about with the coffee, but I did have to buy a coffee grounder. The dedication is I real. I went in, okay? I had that thing Amazon <laughs> Prime to me. I wanted to try the coffee. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about a... Oh, God, how would I even start to describe this? It's a whirlwind. That I mean, an emotional roller coaster. Um, Truly. This was probably the first case that brought me into the true crime world. It's funny you say that because someone actually recommended we cover this case. And I said that you were covering it. And it's actually like the next case that we would be doing. And they were telling me how they heard about it through cold. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's how she found it. And that's how she got interested in true crime yes i listened to the whole first season of the cold podcast done by ksl which is a local news station to utah they did a fantastic job i mean they have so much information that they could make an entire podcast out of it so you can only imagine how much information i had to go through in order to you know make a condensed version of this if you haven't figured it out already because we didn't say it, I will be talking about the disappearance of Susan Powell and the Powell family. Mm, that family. Oh, the family. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> quite the family. Girl, and I even found out some more stuff that I was not fully aware of. So. Oh, I can't wait to hear. Oh, I'm so excited. I hate this case so much. I hate this case. Why is it unsolved? Susan Cox and Josh Powell met each other in the single adult ward of the Mormon Church and were married in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on April 6, 2001. 
I don't know what it is about that, but nothing good comes from it. Honestly, every time I hear the words, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I'm not looking into something that's good. So I would have to agree with you on that. A bit triggered. Susan's family were not fans of Josh pretty much right off the bat. They thought he was arrogant. They thought he was loud, self-centered. He was very, you know, attention seeking. And her mom even said that she felt a darkness with Josh pretty early on. But despite all of her family's warnings, they continued on with their marriage. Oh, not wise. Moms always know. They always know. They're always right. Yes. It's that mother's intuition. Susan was very active in the church. So she believed that family was above all. Well, obviously behind God. So she was very like, I'm going to make this work no matter what. These are my family now. This is this. After being married for about three years, Josh's attempts at being a real estate agent were kind of falling apart. So they planned to move from Washington to Utah to seek out better means of employment. Not too long after their move, Susan found out that she was pregnant with their first child. They were having a boy and they named him Charlie. Susan was just head over heels over the moon that her first child was going to be a son because she knew that that was what Josh wanted. And a few short years after Charlie was born, they actually had their second son, Brayden. So now they are a cute little family of four from the outside. People said she seemed to be happy in her marriage to Josh. No one saw any warning signs in the first few years. Tara Alred, a friend of Susan's, explained that Susan opened up to her about how Josh was pretty controlling and had very exact expectations for her to follow in order to make him happy. And even their babysitter had seen the way he kind of snapped at her when even the slightest thing was out of line. Oh, I bet she had some tea. Mm -hmm. Tara, Susan's friend, said that after a while, she wouldn't even go over to their house anymore because she just couldn't handle the way Josh treated her and she didn't want to watch that anymore. So they would meet up at Tara's house or they would go to like a local park to hang out. When they were hanging out one time, Susan said to Tara, this is not the man I married and confided in her about, you know, possibly taking some legal action. Susan's sister recalls hearing Josh say one time to Susan, over my dead body, will you leave me? And over my dead body, will you leave me and take those boys? So clearly... Sounds like foreshadowing to me. Yes. So clearly Josh was not on the same page. He was not willing to give up her marriage, her, her, their children. He was like, mm -mm, over my dead body, is this going to happen, ma'am? On the morning of December 7th, 2009, it was actually Josh's mother who called 911 to report Susan, Josh, and the two boys were missing. In her 911 call, she said, they're not responding to anyone, even people pounding on their door. They're supposed to be at work and there are no tracks coming out of their driveway. Debbie Caldwell, the daycare provider for the boys, was concerned and reached out to Josh's sister to let her know they never showed up. She knew Susan was a very dedicated mom, and this had never happened previously, which is a testament to why Josh's soon-to-be story of his whereabouts that night are just freaking weird. After the 911 call, four patrol cars showed up to Josh and Susan's home. Since the house was completely locked up and no one was answering, the police offered to break into the home, but would not be responsible for the glass window that they were going to damage. <laughs> I know, class acts. The family agreed to this. They said, all right, whatever you got to do, just get in there. When police officers got into the home, they noticed that there was no signs of a disturbance or physical altercation. But they were kind of thrown off by two box fans that were pointed in the direction of the couch, seeming to, like, be drying it off. This was a freshly cleaned sofa. Why in the hell are there two box fans drying off a freshly cleaned sofa in here? Josh's sister went into the bedroom and noticed Susan's purse had been completely untouched. Her keys were there. Her purse was untouched. So the crime scene is a little bit odd right now. When the lead investigator, Detective Ellis Maxwell, showed up, he kicked everyone out of the house so that he could take proper evidence. When I read that, I was like, holy crap, how did I not even think that while I was reading? When the police walked into the house, they just let people in. Yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah, Josh's sister's in there. How did you not think, oh, we got to 
caution things off. This is a potential crime scene. Right. Jennifer Graves, who is Josh's sister, then started to reach out to people that were close to Susan and ask them when the last time they saw her was. This set off kind of like a chain reaction. And once one person got the call, they called another person to ask. So there were multiple people involved at this point trying to figure out where she could be. Most people were convinced that no one had seen them since they left church the day before. But Susan's friend, Giovanna Owings, said that she had actually seen her that afternoon. Giovanna went over to the Powell residence to hang out with Susan on the afternoon of December 6th, 2009. They were in the living room with the two boys. Susan was knitting a blanket and Josh was in the kitchen making pancakes, which obviously this doesn't seem super weird, but Josh's sister said that this was super odd considering Josh refused to cook. Wow. This guy sucked. He brought (laughs) Susan her plate of pancakes and put a blanket over her shoulders. And Susan even thought this was like very sweet. She even said it out loud like, oh my gosh, isn't this sweet of him to put this blanket over my shoulders? But shortly after... The bar is so low. Right? (laughs) So low. (laughs) The bar is so low. Puts blanket over shoulders. (laughs) Must tell everyone. (laughs) But shortly after she ate her pancakes she excused herself because she was not feeling very well at all and once she started to lay down josh told javana that he was going to take the boys sledding and she said he basically like pushed her out the front door and drove off before she had even left the house so he was in a hurry to get somewhere or to get away from somewhere in my opinion I feel so bad for her because she just seems like such a, just like a nice, happy lady. I don't know. Oh, you just wait. No one had been able to get a hold of Josh or Susan for about 18 hours, maybe a little over 18 hours. Again, it was Giovanna who finally got in touch with Josh. He explained that he was in the West Valley. She told him on the phone that he needed to get back to the house immediately and that everybody was worried and couldn't get a hold of them. Really nonchalantly was like, yeah, whatever. I'll be home in a while. Susan should be at work or something. Literally, he said she should be at work or something. Why Why don't you know what she's doing? Especially since like, you are so controlling over what she's doing. Like, you definitely know. Exactly. The weird thing, after Josh got off the phone with Giovanna, his odometer on his car showed that he turned around and drove 20 minutes in the opposite direction and called Susan's phone to leave her a voicemail. The voicemail said, hello, Susan, we're on our way back. Hopefully you got to work okay. That was it. (laughs) Hello, Susan. They picked up the phone and was like, hello, Erica. are you? Could you imagine? Like, I get a voice <laughs> and it's Max. Just, hello, Allison. We are on our way back. Hopefully, you got to work okay. I'd be like, is he okay? Literally, are you okay? The police had been at the Powell house for eight to ten hours at this point, and we're getting kind of restless, so Detective Maxwell called Josh and said, you need to get back here right now. And what did Josh say to this? Oh, well, I need to feed nah. my kids first. Okay, sir. Detective Maxwell said, I don't care. Your wife is missing. You need to get home right now. Instead of going home like the detective wanted, Josh decided to go to Susan's work, park outside, and call her phone and leave a voicemail again, saying that he was there to pick her up, even though at this point, so many people had told him just straight up, she has not showed up to work. Also, what, like, wouldn't she have driven herself if she was there? What are you doing? Oh, no, she couldn't drive herself there because um, at one point they had two cars and he got rid of one of them because he said it was costing them too much money. So she had to drive her bike to work. Oh, my God. He just didn't want her having a car and like being able to like go places. Also, there was a huge snowstorm the night before. So I don't know how you drive your bike to work in that. Wait, stop. I mean, well, clearly she didn't. She did not drive her bike to work in that because she was not at work. After 45 minutes, Josh finally returned back to the house and immediately they were like, we need to go to the station for questioning. This is where I'm going to put the actual recording of his initial interview at the police station. Because you guys are already trying to trap me on little things. 
like my hands, for one. Taking pictures of your hands, showing that there's no serious injuries to your hands is trapping you. How? Well, when you guys were doing it, you're telling me you like. I asked you where you got the nick on your on your uh, knuckle, and you explained that it was dry skin. Okay. All right. We need to find your wife. I would think that you would want to, you know, help me find your wife. What what kind of questions are they still? What are you worried about? What are you concerned about? You guys, you know, have implied some things, and so it concerns me. We've implied what? Well, you've implied that my hands have some kind of defensive wounds on them just because they're all cut up, and that's just, just the way they are. Okay, so there shouldn't be anything you need to worry about then. I mean, if I have dry hands and my hands were nicked up like that because they're dry hands, I don't think I'd be worried about it. Well, go ahead and ask your question. I mean, do, you know, do we not have a job to do? No, go ahead and, uh, by the way, um, yeah, go ahead and ask the questions. Okay. If you don't want to be here, you can leave. If you don't want to talk, you don't have to talk. Well, I'm just I simply saying talk, that I want to find your wife. I just want to talk, but I'm getting scared. Well, I mean, if you haven't done nothing wrong, Josh, if you didn't do anything wrong, there's nothing to be scared about. Right? Well, I'm scared about the possibilities okay what's happened after only about an hour of questioning they had agreed that he would come in the next morning for some more detective maxwell said if there's anything he would have done differently in this case it would have been to authorize a search warrant that night instead of releasing him and releasing the house to him and i could not agree more why Mm -hmm. why in god's name why did you do that That sucks. That's got to eat away at him. Yeah. I mean, in all of the videos and like interviews and stuff, he's, he says that this case haunts him. He'll never, he will never get over it. He said he's Mm -hmm. seen a million murders. He's been on hundreds of cases. He said that this case is the one that like haunts him. Damn, I bet. Yeah. On December 8th, Susan had been missing for over 24 hours at this point, so Josh's mother and his sister decided to head over to the Powell house in the morning before Josh was supposed to go get questioned by the police. Instead of him, you know, preparing to get questioned, his mother and sister walked in, and he was, like, fully cleaning things. He was cleaning out his vehicle. He was doing loads of laundry, scrubbing walls, vacuuming. He was was getting rid of everything. Oh, my God. It drives me insane. He eventually went to questioning, but he was four hours late and had no explanation. His, it's like he's trying so hard to make it look like he didn't do it, but what he's doing is just so backwards and weird. Dude. Making him look more suspicious. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how he could look more suspicious. He's quite literally like got a red flashing sign on his head in my opinion but yeah when four-year-old charlie was brought into questioning about a day after his mother's disappearance charlie had confirmed to investigators that he went camping that night his mother vanished and said my dad and my mom and my little brother were also there so charlie the four-year-old is saying that his mom was there with them and his dad is saying she wasn't In Rebecca Morris's book called If I Can't Have You, she says that Charlie explained that mommy was in the van but didn't come back with us, which, if you're in my opinion, is like a huge thing for a four year old to say. He's basically telling the detectives, My mom went with me, but she didn't come back. He said, My mom stayed at Dinosaur National Park, my mom stayed where the crystals are. How is this not a clue? How is this not? A red flag. Why is it always, it's always a national park? It really is. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. Many people interpreted... The crystals? Yes, he said the crystals. What what are these crystals? My mom stayed where the crystals are. We'll find out in a little bit about, you know, mining, the mines. So maybe that's what he was talking about. Many people said that Charlie's statement meant that his mother was dead. But obviously, he's a toddler, he's four, and he also made some comments that were really false, like very obviously fabricated, including that they took an airplane to go camping. So Detective Maxwell said there's just a pile of circumstantial evidence. At the end of the day, like, 
he's going to know whether his mom was present or not. I feel like that's not something that he can fabricate. I know. But, I mean, Detective Maxwell said there's not enough to arrest him and book him into jail and hold him accountable for it because all they had was some parts of words that a four-year-old said. Yeah. Josh did tell the detective that he decided to take the boys camping in the desert late that night, knowing good and well that a snowstorm was coming. He said that he called Susan multiple times to let her know his whereabouts. And this is when detectives mentioned that they traced her cell phone. And do you want to guess where it was? Where? It was in his van. Oh. It was in his van. She didn't keep it with her when she stayed at the park? Oh, my God. How, how is this not already just how is he not in handcuffs? Detective Maxwell said, you know you have her phone, but you're calling her phone anyway. And he said he just forgot or he didn't know he had it. Oh, make it make sense. Make it make sense. Sorry, I just got like a little riled up there. Hit things. Detective Maxwell said he did not express any remorse or concern in the questionings. Oddly enough, he then started to say that Susan was suicidal because this was pretty much the only thing that he could speak to that wouldn't implicate him. Finally, after moving on from that, since it was going nowhere and the detective told Josh that they had secured a search warrant for his home and that they were already finishing up the search on his van, they told him to hold tight in the lobby and they would give his van back to him really soon. But after about 15 minutes, he got up and left to go rent a vehicle at the airport. <laughs> he was where you need to go that bad. Literally just like up and left. He would have had his vehicle back in maybe 15 minutes and he just couldn't handle it. He got up. He ordered a taxi, went to the airport, got a rental vehicle. What the hell? Yes. He was gone for 20 hours and he put 806 miles on the rental vehicle. For reference, I just want people to know, I went to school 240 miles from my hometown, and it took like four to four and a half hours to get there. This man traveled to Great Lakes. <laughs> they said he possibly went to Idaho. He could have gone to Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, or Oregon, since Salt Lake City was kind of just like right in the middle of those Police were really nervous that he went to go collect her body and move it to a different location. They have no yep. record of where he went, who he saw, or the activity on his cell phone call logs because there was none. No incoming, no outgoing. And this is so strange because this is like in the middle of his wife disappearing. You don't think people are calling him to ask him where he's at or what happened to Susan? I didn't even think about that. I was just thinking of in terms of like GPS and it like pinging off cell towers. I did not even think of the fact that nobody was contacting him. Coincidentally, somebody else's call logs had no activity that day. Josh's father, Steve Powell. Oh, I was waiting for this introduction. Oh, yes. This is where the suspicion of Steve Powell begins. Guys, I can't talk about this man. I hate him. I hate him so much. Disgusting. Sick, vile. Bitch. Sorry, shouldn't have said that. It was, it was warranted, I think. <laughs> okay, well, Steve Powell is a bitch. <laughs> That's the name of this episode. <laughs> Steve Powell is a bitch. Ain't he? In the police interview with Steve Powell, things started to take a bit of a turn. Steve started to mention that he was highly infatuated with Susan and even went as far as to say she craved his attention. He told police his feelings for Susan were extremely deep. He had footage from home videos of Susan putting on her makeup, her bending over in another room, her getting into her vehicle with short skirts on, and him saying things like, oh yeah, she did that for me. Susan covered her butt in one of the videos as she walked past him, and he kept saying, move the box, move the box. Ew. So, yeah, mm -hmm, disgusting. He had videos of her working at the table and him zooming in like up her dress. There's even one clip of her in another room, and he's saying, through the window, like she can't hear him, he's saying, I worship her. She just turns me on. I'm in a perpetual state of turned on when she's around. I, men are so gross, I'm going to throw up. If you could see my eyes, like, oh my God. He 
followed her, Erica, he followed her in his van to get footage of her walking in and out of buildings. And he would say things like, I just had to get a picture of her in this dress. It's so beautiful. He was stalking her. That's so scary. That is so scary. Josh's sister said it was pretty noticeable, and she thought that it really bothered Josh a great deal. He would calm Josh down by saying, you know, it was nothing. But in reality, Steve had pictures, videos, journals. He was, like, overly obsessed. He would even morph pictures of himself with her. Ew! Ah! Ah! I know. That's some, like, me in eighth grade with One Direction shit. (laughs) Well, if you thought that was gross, you know, take a step back because his obsession was so bad, he would pick up her clothing from out of her laundry basket and video how he thought she smelled so good. And he would literally zoom in on the crotch area. He said that he liked to take her bras and put them over his face. The poor detective who had to go through this footage. I know. I really, I feel for that person because I would turn it off immediately. This person who happens to be your father-in-law has all of these videos of you. You have no idea. She has no idea. She had no idea. She will, she will literally never know how gross this man is. His obsession began at the beginning of Josh and Susan's relationship when they had actually lived with Steve for a period of time. Susan's sister, Denise, remembers Susan saying her father-in-law had a crush on her. He even asked Susan if Josh and him could share her, and she was completely mortified. Yeah, she told her sister, like, this is disgusting. He's, he's a monster. In a 2011 interview with ABC News, he alleged that Susan Powell had made sexual advances toward him. But Kiersey Hallowell, a friend and neighbor, said she told me that part of the reason they moved to Utah in the first place was to get away from her father-in-law, Steve. She said he is the most filthy, foul, sick, disgusting pervert the world has ever seen. He's in love with me. The connection between Josh and Steve continued to be on the same page. They were both trying to paint the same story about how Susan was actually the flirtatious and promiscuous one. And they ended up using her personal journals to provide insight for their stupid story. And in the documentary called The Disappearance of Susan Powell... Even Josh's sister, Alina, said that Susan was not innocent and that Steve was putting up a defense that Susan wanted him. And yeah, I know. I, guys, if you watch this, (laughs) if you watch this documentary, which you definitely should, Alina Powell, I believe, was very, she was the youngest and I think she was very manipulated by her father because throughout the entire documentary she does not see anything wrong she will not give fault to her father which i don't even want to know what like she had to endure as a child for her brain to not even be able to process what he's doing and seeing if it's wrong you know again in the documentary the disappearance of susan cox powell a friend of steven is interviewed her identity actually remains anonymous for her safety but she explains that steve was always kind of an off person he hated the school system. He didn't make his children go to school. He hated his ex-wife so much so that this friend of his said she was convinced that he just hated women in general. He was very open about his addiction to porn as well. Pretty much his for his kids' entire life, all of the children knew that their father was addicted to porn. And of course, he was very open about his feelings for Susan. So this friend knew about his feelings for Susan as well. It's kind of clear where Josh's attitudes towards women comes from now with like him just controlling Susan and being a complete asshole. Oh, 100%. Susan basically just sustained a bunch of emotional and physical abuse throughout the years. And she was highly devoted to her husband and wanted to make it work. Something that I found kind of interesting from the documentary was that 30% of homicides are domestic partners. 
But in the state of Utah, it's actually much higher. It's like 42 to 55%. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. The rules of the church give men a lot of power and she just continued to fight through it. Yeah. Cause I'm sure like a lot of the women there, they're not going to want to leave their husbands. They don't want to get a divorce or anything like that. Oh, it was like against the church. You weren't getting a divorce. No. That's so sad. She was thinking about it too. The Cox family attorney and Bremner said she'd been really happy. He'd been a great husband. And she said that he really changed and became just completely not affectionate. Her friend said that Susan would complain all the time about the lack of intimacy from her husband. He kept her at arm's length. He wouldn't kiss her anymore. He wouldn't touch her. He wouldn't hold her hand. Josh and Susan's marriage was reaching kind of rock bottom in the summer of 2008. Josh and Susan were constantly fighting. They were arguing in front of the kids. Josh was exhibiting extreme control over Susan, kind of like how we already talked about. In the cold podcast, the host Dave Colley said it got to a point where Steve was trying to pin Josh against Susan so that their marriage would fail. It got so bad that a friend of Susan's practically dragged her to a divorce lawyer, and the lawyer told her to video record her home, her assets, and anything else that she needed to record, and keep it in a safety deposit box. So, at the bank, where she actually worked at, inside a safety deposit box, <laughs> once I take back, I work at the bank. <laughs> I hate people who work at the bank. That's it. I couldn't remember the first part. I hate people that work at the bank. And they have like a gun to her head. (laughs) I work at the bank. Yes. At the bank in which she worked at inside a safety deposit box that belonged to her, investigators discovered a handwritten will and testament. On the front of this, it stated, get ready for the family and friends of Susan, All except for Josh Powell, husband. I don't trust him. She spilled. She she went in. In the will, Susan Powell had written about how bad her marriage had become and that Josh had taken out a $1 million life insurance policy on her. She said, and I quote, If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. This is when I about threw my damn computer. She literally said the words, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Nobody jumped on that one? Maybe she might be on to something. Josh had filed for bankruptcy because they were more than $200,000 in debt. And authority, right? Convenient, no? And authorities also determined that Josh Powell had filed paperwork to withdraw money from her retirement account about 10 days after she disappeared. I just want to know what the thoughts were, everybody. After this, it came out that he had a very tight rein on the spending that she was able to have with their money. He sold their second car and in turn, she had to ride her bike to work. He wouldn't let her buy birthday cake mix on birthdays sometimes. He just controlled everything. Police publicly declared Josh Powell as a person of interest about a week after his wife went missing. Despite suspicion... He should have been... He's not even a suspect yet. He should have already been a person of interest. There's so many things. Like, I I understand him not being a suspect, but he damn well should have been a person of interest since they found his her phone in his van. Yeah, I I freaking know. I'm with you. We're on the same page here. Me, you, same pahina. Same page. (laughs) However, despite suspicions, Josh Powell was never charged in Susan Powell's disappearance. I'm going to read that one more time. Josh Powell was never charged in Susan Powell's disappearance. This sentence is grammatically correct, but... (laughs) (laughs) When detectives pushed Josh Powell on the details from the night his wife went missing, he just kept saying he couldn't remember the events leading up to her disappearance. He literally said... I just don't remember what activities we were doing. Not, not, not a single one. Not a single one. No. Chrissy Hellowell said there was no point at which Josh ever seemed to be concerned that Susan was missing. He never participated in any massive efforts that myself, relatives, and friends launched to put flyers in malls and parking lots. He also had a very odd obsession with them asking about his hands. 
So in an interview with Detective Maxwell, he said he only asked to see and picture Josh's hands one time when he was getting questioned. But Josh kept going back to this hand thing, seemingly like really nervous about it. And when Detective Maxwell stepped out of the room, Josh was visibly investigating his own hands, which led them to believe that it's very possible that he could have strangled Susan. When searching the house, they also found very small blood droplets next to the couch that Josh had cleaned. A little bit of an oopsie on Josh's part. This could have come from her coughing due to strangulation, which is kind of like what they were just assuming. Uh, They didn't have evidence of it, but that's what it looked like because they were so small and they were in a spot where that could have possibly happened. It came out during the questioning of many friends and family members that Josh was also into forensic and true crime shows. Uh Uh-huh. Fellow true crimer. Mm -hmm. But he said, if I were to do it, I'd put the body in the mines. When they investigated Josh's computer, they found that he had actually searched up places like Simpson Springs and... Ellie, Nevada, and all kinds of remote areas that there are actually mines. When they were searching his brother Mike's belongings, his email showed correspondence with a mapping company for a super high-resolution image of a wreckage yard in Oregon. Remember where I said he could have been that day that he had traveled? Mm-hmm. This oh, was wow. Lindell's auto salvage. Apparently, okay. Michael's vehicle broke down on the ride to Oregon. Instead of having his vehicle towed to the nearest auto shop, he paid an extra $500 to have it taken to Lindell's auto salvage yard so it would be disposed of. Well, well, well. They had a team with decomposition-smelling dogs sent out to this auto salvage yard. You're never going to guess where these dogs went. Where? They went straight to Michael's car. Okay. Yeah, samples were immediately sent to the lab, but the DNA showed nothing. It was insufficient to make a complete comparison. This doggone pissed me off because I was just ready. I thought we had it. I was like, yeah, the dogs did it. The dogs did it. I always want the dog to win, but they didn't win that time. You are always rooting for the dogs. I'm always rooting for the dogs. What was that? Um, what was that one song that was like "Dog Days Are Over"? You know that one? And Florence and the Machine. Yeah, yeah. Dog also covered never ugly. Over. Dog days are never. <laughs> dog over. days are never over. Forty-six days after the disappearance, Jennifer decided she was going to wear a wire and go visit Josh. She ended up being able to get him cornered in a study room, but Steve Powell interrupted before she got anything from him. So Jennifer took it upon herself to shove Josh and say, tell me where her body is. She kind of kept poking and prodding and she kind of made a scene over at dinner. He became pretty defensive and then he said he's just going to follow what his attorney said and withdraw. After an altercation with Josh and then Steve, Jennifer ended up getting nowhere. I feel like she was so dedicated to that moment. Yeah, she was honestly so close, too. I know. Maxwell said that the Salt Lake City County District Attorney refused to file charges without a body until a year had passed. Come on, man. The police tried to rattle Josh's cage a bit by conducting searches at places like Topaz Mountain and other areas that they thought might cause him to confide in someone else about her disappearance. Instead, they decided to use Susan's journal to convince the public that Susan was not who people thought she was, and they didn't murder her. She ran away with another man. The police put together a honkin' wave to create pressure and hopefully get Steve and Josh to say that the journals were in the house where Josh and Steve were staying so that the police could get a warrant to search the house. And it worked. Steve Powell got in an argument with Chuck Cox, which is Susan's father, on camera. And Steve, of course, brought up the journals. He said, those journals are my son's property. Thankfully, the police were able to search the home and the things that they found. Erica, the things that they found. I'm just going to list a few of them for you. It's like beyond belief what they found. 5,000 pictures of Susan. Cotton balls with her old nail polish on them. Feminine hygiene products in Ziploc bags that were hers, that were used, my friend. That's disgusting. 
Her underwear were in Ziploc bags. Locks of her hair were in Ziploc bags. Where did he get that? And then he had videos of him masturbating to photos and videos of her. Ew. Ew. And he had videos of neighbors, little girl neighbors and young kids through windows. He was like peeping. Yes. He had a window at his house that he could see directly into his neighbor's house. And he would film the neighbor girls like getting baths and things like that. Disgusting. Disgusting. That's so messed up. Oh my God. I did not. I I didn't know this part. I had no idea. Police arrested Stephen Powell in November of 2011 and charged him with voyeurism and possession of child pornography. Josh Powell was named a subject in the child pornography investigation. Following Stephen Powell's arrest, Josh Powell lost custody of his two sons. When he had to say goodbye, he didn't even hug them. He just, like, let them go. Chuck and Judy Cox were awarded temporary custody of the children in which they acted essentially as kind of like foster parents. The state had official custody of them, and Josh was given weekly supervised visitations. Undeserved, but all right. Yeah. Ted Buck, another one of the attorneys for the Cox family, said because of all the things that the police encountered in the search at the Powell house, it became very apparent that eventually these boys were in imminent risk of harm. So Josh Powell's sister, Jennifer Graves, told Dave Colley in the Cold Podcast, there was obviously something there, some sexual abuse going on, and who knows what else could have been going on. They were just starting to scratch the surface. One time, Charlie even said, we don't talk about Susan and camping. I keep all those secrets. <gasps> I know. I know. In February of 2012, new evidence emerged that the laptop from Posh, posh Jowls. <laughs> posh Jowls. That sounds like a dog brand. In February of 2012, new evidence emerged that a laptop from Josh Powell's Utah home contained images of cartoon pornography. A judge then ordered Josh Powell to undergo a psychosexual evaluation and take a polygraph test. For the next three months, he underwent psychological evaluations and police had just shared some deeply troubling images found on his computer with the evaluator. The document was incredibly detailed at the end of it all. There were 2,592 pages in total. Many believe that Josh did not think that he was going to be able to pass this polygraph test. On February 5th, 2012, a state caseworker brought the boys to the Powell home for a supervised visit. He locked the official out, incapacitated the five and seven-year-old children with a hatchet, poured gasoline on them, and around the house, and then caused an explosion. Josh Powell murdered his children. I mean, I guess he would commit suicide then. Family annihilator. Yes, family annihilator. The worst part about this is that Charlie and Brayden did not actually die from the hatchet wound that their father had inflicted. They died of smoke inhalation, which means that they were pretty much alive the entire time. Um, didn't they, didn't they, weren't they found like holding hands? Yes. Yes, they were. I was going to leave that out. Stop. 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 I'm sorry. I think about that caseworker all the time, honestly. Like how traumatic was that have been? And she was outside of the house. They have like, they have her on a 911 call just freaking out. Freaking out. A few months later in June of 2012, Steve Powell was actually convicted on the voyeurism charges. If you don't know what that means, that is the practice of gaining sexual pleasure from watching others when they are naked or engaged in sexual activity. He was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. The trial court had initially dismissed the charge for possession of child pornography in 2012, but the state court... Yeah, I know. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) The state's court of appeals reinstated the charge in 2014. So thank you. Thank you. Especially because the voyeurism charge was like, it's not just people. They were literal children. Yes. He was convicted of possession of child pornography in 2015 and spent another two years in prison. Steve Powell served a total of seven years in prison before being released in July of 2017. The year after that, he died of heart complications. See, that's why, like, if you haven't heard this case before, that this is why 
everybody is so fired up about it because there is so much that we do not know. And all of the people who know these things are dead. Yes, including Mike Powell, who ended up committing suicide by jumping off a parking garage in 2013. So literally everyone. Bye. There had to be something on his conscience. Like, oh, 100%. Why do you think they found his human decomposition in his car? Something was weighing exactly. him down. I did find some information on the psychological profile done on Josh Powell. This was actually part of the evaluation that Dr. James Manley had done on him previous to the, you know, polygraph test. Dr. James Manley was chosen because he was one of only a handful of psychologists who had been following the case on the news. He diagnosed Josh Powell with adjustment disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. The report concluded Powell had the intellect and skill necessary to safely parent his sons. However, it also said he had difficulty staying focused on his children's emotional and psychological needs. And I quote, The boys whom he loved were actually, in my opinion, extensions of himself. It's like little Josh 1 and little Josh 2 and not my sons. That's horrible. It makes sense as to why, like, he was like, if I'm going to die, they have to die too. Exactly. During the evaluation, Powell had repeatedly avoided topics that might portray himself in a negative light, such as claims in court declarations filed during his parents' divorce that said he had attempted suicide as a teen. He had traits of narcissism, which is the perfect self. The idea of a narcissist is that they do not have the ability to see themselves as flawed. The report shows that Josh had an excellent memory, so whenever he was telling the police that he had no idea what they did the night before, this was BS. He experienced no (laughs) difficulties recounting a variety of aspects and times of his childhood and young adult years, so there was nothing wrong with his memory. There were no cognitive thinking errors or difficulties in attention. Josh's cognitive functioning is actually documented as being above average. With respect to anger management, (laughs) Josh described himself as very meek and unassertive, who had difficulty standing up for himself, and reports show he had difficulty in the appropriate expression of anger, which I do not doubt in the slightest. Yeah, definitely did not express that appropriately. (laughs) No, not at all. Taking the parenting... (laughs) Right. (laughs) In the parenting stress inventory, Josh was defensive and appeared to be responding in an attempt to look good and deny any sources of stress. He said, what? Stress? No, me. Not me. After years of investigation, detectives uncovered little information about Susan's disappearance. No one has ever found Susan's body. No one has ever been arrested or charged with this crime. Reporter Dave Colley has a theory in the murder of Susan Cox Powell, which obviously he thinks Josh Powell may have killed his wife with a handheld power tool, possibly an 18-volt rigid brand cordless impact driver. That was very specific. How did he come to that conclusion? Oh, I'm not kidding. If you have, you know, some time, just some time on your hands to listen to something in the background... But don't miss any information, so don't listen to it in the background. Gotta be really engaged. (laughs) (laughs) If you have any time, listen to the cold podcast because there is so much information. And reporter Dave Colley has, he literally has everything every photo, every piece of documentation. He will tell you everything that went down. So he is the one who went through, found this cordless impact driver. He said, immediately after being cleared from bankruptcy, Josh Powell went to Home Depot where he opened a credit card in Susan Powell's name, racked up more than $1,000 in debt, and one of his purchases was this 18-volt rigid brand cordless impact driver. There it is. Yes. Josh Powell kept a spreadsheet with photos of his tools along with their serial numbers. He later deleted these files, but thanks to computer backup software, investigators recovered the log. Honestly, I could do a whole another episode on this entire theory, but I did want you to know that there is a theory from Dave Crawley out there on the cold podcast where he talks about Josh Powell most likely being the person who killed Susan Powell. In a lot of the different documentaries and stuff, people really think that Stephen Powell, his father, had a lot to do with it. 
And so there's a lot of different theories of who played what role and what really went down. Um, there was a theory. What is your theory? There was a theory about poison after she ate the pancakes. She wasn't feeling good. And honestly, for a while, I thought, you know, like that was really a good theory because he could have easily like got her body and put it in a van and then did something with it. And there would be no trace of blood or Mm -hmm. blood force trauma or things like that. So, I mean, I thought that one for a while. I mean, all of the things about Stephen Powell just like make you really think because wow, that man was messed up. And honestly, the way that the Powell children were raised with him, they could have all been really messed up in the head too. You really never know the control that he had over his children and what he could have said to Josh in order for him to obviously react poorly. He did not have very good anger management skills, which we learned. So I have no idea what I think is the best explanation. And since her disappearance on December 6th of 2009, her body hasn't been found. I mean, in November of 2019, the state of Utah actually declared her legally dead. Her family was pushing for that. So at least they got something. Mm -hmm. But I have no idea what happened to Miss Susan Powell. And unfortunately, there are so many different things that could have happened. And every single one of them is freaking terrible. Every single one of them is a nightmare. I definitely think that he killed her. And I think what Collie said about the whatever that tool is definitely mm-hmm. points to that. Oh, and yeah. I totally think that his dad and his brother helped him with the body. I I remember seeing a Reddit thread that was like, what's one of those cases that's never been solved that you want more than anything to be solved? This is definitely one of them. Next week, I'm going to do another case that is one of those cases that I sit here and desperately want to be solved. That has not been solved and don't think it ever will be solved. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. This one is a long one. So thank you for sticking around. I'm not a big two-part gal and I don't think this was enough to do two parts, but it's long. So thank you for sticking around and hopefully you're just as invested in this case as I am at this point. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. 